Welcome to Health Matters, Sonoma's weekly program devoted to health and well-being. Each week through interviews, editorials, and listener participation, we will explore topics and issues of contemporary medicine and its relationship to the lifestyles of our community. Our goal is to provide you with information and resources to help you achieve and maintain what you deserve, a happy, healthy, and productive life. I'm your host, Dr. Ned Hoke, a veteran in natural methods healthcare, speaking with you today from Sonoma Valley, California, for an hour of health topic digestion and discussion. Please stay with us. Well, welcome back to Health Matters. Dr. Ned Hoke today having, a, I think, an important visit with you. Today, we're going to be talking with the author of a book called Your COVID-19 Survival Manual. Dr. Stephen Quay will be with us shortly. This is perhaps one of the most important uh, uh, interviews I think maybe I will have done in the course of my 15 years, given the, the strength and the power of the pan that pandemic that we're facing. And so what before Dr. Quay joins us, I'm going to read something from his from his writing and something about the situation that I think we, we need to become aware of and that I'm eager to let you know it, let you uh, let you aware of. And basically it's this. Um, well, let's start with the art of war. Dr. Quay highlights his book with quotes from Sun Tzu. The art of war is the vital importance to the state. It is the matter of life and death, a road either to safety or to ruin. It is a subject of inquiry which can uh, be no accident, be can, can, which can on no account be neglected. Stephen Quay is the founder of a Seattle-based clinical stage biopharmaceutical company. He resides in Taiwei, Taipei, Taiwan, with his wife, who's also a scientist. Um, let's read a little bit about his background here. He has an MD and BMA and PhD from the University of Michigan. He was a postdoctoral fellow at MIT with a Nobel laureate uh, H. Karana and was a resident at the Harvard Massachusetts General Hospital and was on the faculty of Stanford University Medicine for almost a decade. Um, he has written what is, to me, a dramatically important a new book called Your COVID-19 Survival Manual. With all the staggering shock felt with the arrival of the virus, the terror of profound sickness and death penetrating into every state and city and town, the words of Sung Zi, the ancient Chinese strategist, ring strong. While sadly and tragically, rings often mostly hollow and empty, our uh, country's highest elected leadership. Today in Health Matters, we will be joined by a physician leader, Dr. Stephen Quay, who has a great deal to sh stay and share with us. It will be worth your time to listen and stay tuned. So while we're waiting for Dr. Quay to join us, I'm going to read from... Uh, some important material that is relevant to today's discussion. Basically, it's the part. It's part of the basis of Dr. Quay's book, Your COVID-19 Survival Manual. And basically, this is the discussion from um, uh, of how to make a mask more effective in terms of its utilization. Now that we're all wearing masks, and well, well, we should be. Um, there's quite a, a issue about masks and what. The masks and they become a biohazard when they're they've been used, when they um, uh, they they have deficiency. Let's say, and one of the ways of making the mask more useful, I'll be reading about now. This is called a use a universal and reusable virus deactivation system for respiratory protection. This is a, a, art, a article that appeared in Nature magazine in 2017, and I, and I have to admit, I wonder why I didn't hear about this before. Aerosolized pathogens are the leading cause of respiratory infection and transmission. Currently used protective measures pose potential risk of primary and secondary infection and transmission. 
Here we report on the development of a universal reusable virus deactivation system by the functionalization of the main fibrous filtration unit of the surgical mask with sodium chloride, salt. The salt coating on the fiber surface dissolves upon exposure to virus aerosols and recrystallizes during drying, destroying pathogens. When tested with tightly sealed sides, salt-coated fibers showed remarkably higher filtration efficiency than conventional mask filtration layer. The 100% survival rate was observed in mice infected with virus that, uh, through salt-coated fibers. Viruses captured on salt-coated fibers exhibited rapid in infectivity loss compared with the gradual decrease on bare fibers. Salt-coated fibers proved highly effective in deactivating influenza viruses regardless of subtypes and following storage in harsh environment conditions. Our results can be applied in obtaining broad-spectrum airborne pathogen prevention device in preparation for epidemic and pandemic respiratory diseases. This is, this is uh, uh, for me, a big part of what this book offers, but it's because, and, and what I've been doing is I've been preparing little handout materials for people that basically describes the application of this salt to the, mat, to the masks. Let me go a little further with this because it's going to be a little bit before Dr. Um, Quay joins us. So, and one of the advantages of Dr. Quay is that he describes in very, very good detail uh, in, in a digestible, uh, simple-to-understand language what the situation is with regard to the viruses, where the virus came from. He describes, in the book, he describes the, um, the history of the pandemics, the different, he describes the different pandemics, and lots and lots of tips on what you can do to protect yourself while either vaccines are being developed or while drugs for treatment are being developed. And he's doing some of both. He's busy de developing a drug for this situation, but, uh, which is what he does normally for usually breast cancer. But anyway, today I'm going on with this uh, reading from the Universal and Reusable Virus Deactivation System. That's the important word, Deactivation System for Respiratory Protection. Aerosols take a prominent role in airborne transmission of respiratory diseases. Droplets with aerodynamic size are known to infect the alveolar regions and the upper respiratory tract, respectively. Notably, aerosols can also be a route of infection in diseases that, contrary to the instances of influenza, do not specifically target the respiratory tract, as could be the case with Ebola. While vaccinations can greatly reduce the morbidity and mor mortality, during the pandemic, our epidemic or epidemic new viruses matching the specific strain would be available. At the earliest six months after the initial outbreak, additionally, following the development of effective viral vaccines, several potential problems would remain, such as limited supply due to insufficient production capacity and time-consuming manufacturing processes. As a result, individuals close to the point of outbreak would be in imminent danger of exposure to infectious diseases during the non-vaccine period. That's the period we're in right now. In the absence of vaccination, respirators and masks can, be, can work to prevent transmission of airborne pathogen aerosols and control diseases such as influenza. The main alternative, the N95 respiratory, respirator, excuse me, requires training prior to use, must be expertly fitted to address the risks of face, face seal leakage and the face mask interface, and it must be disposed of as a biohazard. Due to these factors, the use of N95 respirators on a large scale is impractical and expensive during an, a pandem an epidemic or pandemic. Past experiences of severe acute respiratory syndrome, SARS, H1N1, swine flu in 2009, and the Mideast Respiratory Syndrome, MERS, indicate that surgical masks have been mostly widely adopted 
by the public as personal protective measures, despite the controversy as to their effectiveness. Currently, among other factors, filtration in respirators and masks depends on the filter characteristics, including fiber dynamic, uh, packaging, packing density, the uh, charge of the fibers and the filter thickness, as well as the particle properties, such as the diameter, density, and velocity. However, in the lack of a system to deactivate the collected pathogens, safety concerns naturally arise about secondary infections and contaminations from virus-laden fibers media during utilization and disposal. We're still talking about masks. Furthermore, since desterilization is not possible without causing damage, respirators and masks are recommended for single use only. Scientific efforts has been focused on the treatment of filters with materials well-known and antimicrobial properties such as iodine, chlorine, and metals, although with limited effectiveness against viral uh, aerosols. Therefore, the key challenge is the development of an easy-to-use universal virus negation system, I love that word negation, which is reusable without reprocessing and capable of deactivating pathogens thereby reducing the potential risk of secondary infections and transmission. Here we report on a simple but efficient virus inactivation system exploiting the naturally occurring salt recrystallization. Our strategy is to modify the surface of the fibrous filtration layer within the masks with a continuous salt film for virus deactivation via two successive processes. The salt is locally dissolved by the viral aerosols, and its supersaturation is followed by the evaporation-induced salt recrystallization. Consequently, viruses are exposed to increasingly higher concentrations of saline solution during the drying and physically damaged by recrystallization. So that's the first part of that article. And I read that in detail because I wanted you to understand uh, very specifically, right from the beginning, that we are where we are in, in this particular drama of this moment. In other words, we are surrounded by people wearing masks of necessity, and the, there's a number of inefficiencies with regard to the untreated mask. And what Dr. Quay has given us uh, guidance to is this article, which I just read from, and then a lot more than that. But what I've been doing is handing out. Uh, because I'm so enthusiastic about it, the uh, just the directions for how to you know, prepare the mask and so on. But Dr. Quay will be with us shortly, and let's see what I, what should we talk about before he comes. Um, now we are all you know staggeringly struck uh, fast with with the antiviral the arrival of the virus and the terror of the profound sickness and death penetrating into every state and city and town. In the, in the words of Sun Zi, the ancient uh, Chinese strategist, uh, Ring Strong. I read that before. Um, so now, reading from some of Dr. Kui's, um, you could rightly call it promotional material, talking about the book. Um, let's do some of that. Learn how to beat coronavirus before it beats you. When you learned a two-minute stop, you can take every time you come home to kill the coronavirus. This is not from the book. This is not only about the mask. Plus, you'll learn an easy do-it-yourself step that takes your face mask from a viral barrier into a viral killer, giving you uh, over 100 times the protection of an untreated mask. Discover how not to death die of COVID-19 by making your lungs younger and learn uh, one exercise you won't learn in the gym that could save your life. Find out the coronavirus diabolic trait and how it's helped the virus spread so fast and what it, you can do to stop it. Learn the number one most effective way to prevent the spread of coronavirus as we reopen society. It's the one thing the CDC said was not effective when coronavirus hit the United States. Get the skinny on what to eat and drink and what to avoid so when you prevent, 
so you can prevent and beat this coronavirus. And you'll learn the best supplements I have found from clinical trials and research for immune health during this pandemic. Not sure if you have COVID-19? In this book, you'll find a quick free home test for COVID-19 that is as good as an FDA-approved nasal swab. Now, if you have COVID-19, I've got information for you. And because we don't ever want to see a, p- a pandemic this bad again, I've got chapters which describe three steps to take to th- thrive during the next epidemic, suggest for improving the government response to the pandemic and doing more to help business and citizens, how to gain a function research is likely is the likely culprit behind this coronavirus and why we must ban it to prevent future pandemics. Finally, I want you to know why I chose to write this book. As a scientist, I've been following the coverage of COVID-19 and doing a lot of research on my own. I've spent hundreds of hours digging into our articles and research papers published in the top scientific journals, and my efforts have paid off. And because this is how I, find, how I found the data that allowed me to formulate the tips I'm sharing with you in this book. Every recommendation I've made has a foundation in legitimate scientific research. We've provided the citations. You can see them. What's distressing to me is the media, that's us, overwrought as they were following the magnitude of the crisis, has not reported most of this information. By rough estimate, 60 to 70% of what I have to offer is found nowhere else. So I feel felt compelled to get this information out to you as quickly as possible. Because we are making a very special offer, and it says, uh, blah, blah, blah. I don't want you to have to wait for this to ship this book to you. This is obviously, this is, he's selling you a book here. So that's, which is fine with me because I, I, I'm fine with selling a book like this, which is, has so much apparent social value. So what he's basically offering here is a special offer to, uh, you know, send you the hardcover book. That is, it's a soft cover, but anyway, the, you know, the physical book. But he wants to start you off with an an ebook. He'll he'll tell tell us more about that. Um, So now what we'll do is we'll have a little uh, wait time, and uh, Dr. Uh, Quay will be with us shortly. So please stay tuned. And welcome back to Health Matter, Dr. Ned Hoke. Today, joined by Dr. Stephen Quay. As you'll remember, we just were reading from his earlier work, and also reading from the Universal and Reusable Virus Deactivation System. Uh, article that I uh, that uh, Stephen pointed out to me and, and mentioned in his book. So Stephen, let's start right away with, of course, you're in Taiwan, and maybe for our listeners who probably have gotten some wind of it, tell our listeners about how it's gone with this virus in 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 Taiwan and how that's different from what we see around us here in the states. Sure. Well, Ned, it's a, it's a pleasure to be uh, speaking to you and to speaking to your to your listeners here. Um, Taiwan, a small island off the coast of China, 23 million people total, um, but a, but a fairly modern society. I mean, I think it came of age with computers and chips, and and they, you know, Taiwan was the the go to place for computer chips for the longest time. Now it's the go to place for design, and the chips are actually made in other Asian countries. But uh, nonetheless, in 2002 and three, uh, Taiwan was surprised by the last coronavirus we had. It it, it ended up uh, infecting about 8,000 people in the entire world and killing about 10% of those. But Taiwan suffered greatly in that time frame. And their, the government and their CV, they have their own CDC, which is the you know, Centers for Disease Control, said they would never let it happen again. Ah. And they've been on the alert for 17 years. And uh, in fact, beginning in December, they, they did things very differently. Very differently. Apparently. So you're saying differently. And what would put some, put some more flesh on that bone? I mean, what, 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 does, different, what does different look like? <laughs> okay. Yeah. No, I wanted to be sure that I was framing it in the right direction. No, absolutely. You. So, um, you know, Okay, uh, Taiwan is a, a, a Chinese-speaking country and a Chinese-language country. Right. Um, the written language is the same throughout China and Taiwan. So uh, in December, the CDC, we learned, we learned in retrospect, the CDC in Taiwan was monitoring 
uh, and had been, I guess, for a very long time, monitoring social media in mainland China. Um, why would they do that? Well, lots of reasons, but among them that, um, you know, China has uh, some, some incredibly ancient histories and ancient cultures, but they involve, but they involve things which from a, from a, a public health and a, and a disease point of view could be problematic, which is, for example, markets with, uh, with lots of animals and, and, and slaughtering in, in public and those sorts of things. So nonetheless, Taiwan was moder- monitoring China, and in December, before there are any announcements anywhere in the world, uh, picked up chatter around conversations that, that, that a new infection in the uh, Hubei province, uh, the, the large town of Wuhan, uh, were occurring. And so two days before China announced uh, at all that they had any, any issues whatsoever, um, direct flights from Wuhan to Taipei, which is the major city in Taiwan with international airports, all direct flights were boarded by CDC folks who would take everyone's temperature before they let them off the airplane. Um, so this is this is the sort of the starting point of Taiwan's uh, approach to this. Uh, when it very quickly became clear that it was going to become a, a major problem. Uh, sorry, let me back up. Another important fact about Taiwan's situation is 23 million people in the island, and 6% of that um, uh, are in mainland China at any given point in time. So 6% of their citizens are in mainland China. One of two things. Either vacationing because... Uh, there's many things to do in you know mainland China, and and, and there's cross cultural uh, appreciation. Uh, also, business. Uh, as I said, uh, the computer industry uh, goes from designing things in Taiwan to making things in mainland China. Right. So, with a country with six percent of your population in mainland China, you are at perhaps the largest risk of having a, a Chinese uh, uh, major you know infection moving to your island. So they they very quickly. Uh, I, the other the other thing is culturally. So people wear ten, even before this pandemic, ten to fifteen percent of people are wearing masks at any at any point in time. Right. So Taiwan very quickly announced that there was a new uh, a new infection in uh, China. Uh, they asked for more information from the Chinese, but they also told their own people on the island that there was a, that there seemed to be a new a new infection coming out of mainland China. So immediately, uh, uh, mask wearing in public went to 50, 60, 70 percent. Uh, we know from many peer-reviewed studies that that in and of itself uh, is a major impediment to, uh, to getting infection. Uh, but they also then immediately went, went very far in monitoring um, you know, people coming out of, out of Wuhan, which is where this process started. Now, um, they, I mean, they, they do things differently. And, and, you know, so the libertarian side of me, you know, starts talking about some of the things they do. But, for example, if you were coming from Wubei, you were, record, you were required to be quarantined uh, for 14 days in your home uh, during the month of January. Uh, and they actually used your cell phone to monitor your movements. And there were a couple people who they sort of shamed with public, uh, public situations where they you know, you were, people were actually fined um, for having left their home during the required quarantine period of time. So, um, and then they they put in place very strong tracing. Uh, 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 so they would they knew, for example, a person who became infected. Um, they developed tests very quickly, and they could actually they could actually warn other people whose cell phones were near the person with an infection that they had been near. The, the, the near case, wow. and they were urged to quarantine as well. So this idea of contact monitoring and following, incredible idea, but it only works at the beginning of a pandemic mm. or epidemic. Um, the, the idea now of having contact tracing in America with you know with with uh, millions of, of, of patients is, uh, I think, is an impossibility, and I'm not I'm not quite sure what they think they'll achieve by doing that. But, right. Well, no, that's part of what I'm hoping you'll share with our listeners, because to me, you're you're bringing a voice of sanity and and coherence to this. Our our media is giving us so much of the terror, and they're and they're not giving us uh, strategic coherence, basically, to to my ear yeah, anyway, yeah. by by and large. And so I'm into, <laughs> I'm hoping you'll share with our listeners exactly how you see you know, both what's happened in Taipei and Taiwan, but also 
in a polite way, if you can, uh, how we're failing here and, and, and what your thoughts, sure. what, what, what does better look like, in other words? Well, exactly, exactly. And, and, and again, um, just to put a perspective, so when I, when I started blogging about this on my website, drcoy.com, and then I finally said I need to write a book about this, it was in the context that um, I've only looked at this as how, I w- how a physician who has patients or family, how a physician would look at it. I, I'm not trying to pretend I'm a CDC employee or right. a government employee and what's, <laughs> what's best for the public health. Right. Um, so, for example, I mean, very early on when they were saying that masks don't work and, and you shouldn't wear them and they might increase the risk, um, you know, I, I think they should have been honest. What, what, that, what, they were, what they should have been saying is, look, we don't have enough masks for everybody to wear them. And what we all, what we really need is to be sure that our health professionals, doctors, nurses, people in the hospital, don't get this, they don't get sick and die and, and stop being able to treat it. So let's let those folks get the mask first because they will really help them. And then we'll backfill and get masks for everybody later. I, I mean, that conversation, I think, with adults is going to is going to hit eighty people, and yeah, there will be twenty percent of the people that won't respect that that uh, triage and that and that prioritization, but. Still, I, 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 I like to trust people and think they have goodwill. So that, that would have been the message. That's how I would have started with that. Right. Because masks absolutely do help. Um, I mean, we know from the Black Plague, there's, there's you know, 500-year-old articles written about the fact of, the fact of using face masks and, and face coverings uh, during uh, during these times. And, and they didn't even know what a germ was. You know, and you, 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 do, you do go into a, quite a, a good discre- description of, of the historical perspectives. The, the, you call it, I think, the seven pandemics, I believe it is. And you start with the Black uh, Death, and, and, and then you go on yep. to, to Spanish flu, and then you go on to other ones. Smallpox, I meant to say. And then uh, the plague of Justinian. And HIV and so exactly. on. So you go through and you sort of give us with your book um, a feeling, a, a sense of context for what we're dealing with. And of course, you also give the details of like how many people died and kind of so on like that. So again, that's one of the gifts of the book. I think is that you're 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 putting a floor on things. You're giving us a, you're not just giving us terror. You're giving us a, a sense of you know we've been th- we've been through this. You know, humans have been through this kind of process before. So. Uh, is there anything else in the in the historical perspective from your point of view that is particularly uh, meaningful that we should be thinking about in terms of we as citizens? Uh, what 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 does the historical perspective what what should we be thinking about that that they may not be thinking about? Yeah, no, it's, 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 I think you all, I think uh, we're very close to the point there. So it was it was just the context that that, that look at. I mean, we. We always, everyone believes they're in the most important period in history in their own life. <laughs> right. Some sort of, <laughs> right? right. So, so I'd like to put some, some perspective on that for everybody. So this, right. is, this is pandemic number 15 right. in terms of severity of, of, of killing people. Mm-hmm. So there, there are 14 others. Uh, number 14 uh, had 600,000 deaths. We're somewhere around 250, 300. I, I haven't heard the latest figure, but I'm not sure we'll get to number 14, but nonetheless, um, there have been much worse, much much worse pandemics, mm-hmm. and um, really the most important day I had in this whole process was February tenth. What happened on February tenth? Well, right. on February tenth, the CDC in China uh, put out a study of seventy thousand people with COVID nineteen. Now, first of all, we I acknowledge that information from China uh, has to be taken with a grain of salt, just right. like information from any government. Right. Uh, this was their CDC, and it was, you know, doctors writing a paper. But So, so you, you take that off the table. Okay, I have, to, I have to be careful understanding this. But then you say, okay, here's a study of 70,000 people with COVID-19. What happened to them? Well, the thing that jumps out at you is that, well, wow, there's a huge age effect. And yes, if you are over 90 or 80 or 70, this is a really serious thing for you, and you need to think about how you manage this. But if you're under 20 or under 30 or under 40 or maybe even 40 to 50, you know, it looks a lot like the influenza. It might be a worse influenza than typical, but we've never, you know, we never made a decision to shut down a country for three months uh, for influenza. Right. 
Uh, this had never done that before. So the first thing I saw was that this is a highly age-dependent virus, and yes, it's deadly for o- for older people, uh, but it's not so deadly for younger people. And then, and then, even in this paper, they also had the, the key risk factors, the pre-existing conditions that make it most likely that if you're not very old, you may still die, and that is, you know, cancer and diabetes and heart disease, um, and 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 the like. So. By February 10th, I had a perspective on this that that became quite different from the narrative that got created uh, around the world. Right. Uh, around the world. Right. And you you write in your book that this is just to, to give our our listeners a little sense of things. You say this is this virus is 20 times stronger than I guess you were referring to the um, the t- typical influenza virus. So, and you also make quite a point of uh, quite a lovely uh, lovely wrong word, but you a visually successful description of the size of the virus, which is, of course, extremely, <laughs> extremely small. And you talk about the size of a, I think, a, you know, a basketball, and then it goes to the moon or something or other. But anyway, so you have an interesting way of, of, sh- of revealing to the reader how really small this is. So for those of us who are using masks, we can, we can appreciate and, and understand how significant the, the seal of our mask is and also how how the significant the, well, just the, the fact that it's as small as it is means that it's so easy to sort of dis, to, to not be aware of what, exactly what's going on. But moving, moving along, um, you, one of the things the other book, the book also gets into is that it gets into some things that we can do to take care of ourselves and also some screening tests that we can do. And we'll be talking about that, those in the second part of our program, but just for a little bit longer for now, there's a, the there's the zoonosis. These it's called zoo disease. Tell us what zoo disease is. Yeah, so so zoonosis is a uh, is the the fancy word for a disease that comes from a, a vertebrate animal. So an animal that has a vertebrae like we do okay. to humans. Okay. So malaria comes from mosquitoes to humans. So mosquitoes don't have a backbone. They have a lot of other things that I don't like, but they don't have a backbone. So so malaria is not <laughs> right. a zoonotic disease. Right. But um, but this coronavirus is probably a zoonotic disease. Uh, there was one uh, in 2015 in the Middle East that came from camels. Uh, the original coronavirus came from bats back in 2003 and four. So. Um, you know, there's a whole field of this study of of of, uh, of, of viruses that can jump species. For for you know, for a doctor like you, Ned, I mean, it, it, it seems like crazy to to imagine a virus that can go from an animal that's so different from us to us. But uh, for a virus, they're they're just they're just a piece of raw information. Right. Um. You know, it, 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 as I said in the book, you know, that if if your if your blueprint of life is the number of bases you have, the number of the, the size of your genetic material, um, and the human the human genetic materials, you know, maybe a hundred thousand King James Bibles or one hundred and twenty thousand Warren pieces. This thing is a this thing is a thirty page pamphlet. <laughs> <laughs> right, right, so, right. You know, even even as I say in the book, even Stephen King can't pack that much diabolical evilness into that small space. Right. We're speaking to Dr. Stephen Quay. Where he's calling us from Taiwan, Taipei, Taiwan. He's written, a, a, I think, an incredibly important new book called Your COVID-19 Survival Manual. Please stay tuned. We'll be back with you in just a moment. And welcome back to Health Matters. Dr. Ned Hoke today, joined again by Dr. Stephen Quay and his new book called Your COVID-19 Survival Manual. And right away, we should probably tell our listeners how they can uh, reach out and, and get a copy of this. So thanks, Ned. Appreciate that. So the the book is available in a, an ebook format. That is, you can download it, you know, to a computer or a, or a phone or something like that. And then and then a physical book. Uh, it's on my website, www.drquay.com. It's fourteen ninety five, and you get both both the ebook and the physical book. And and you know, I'm sharing the proceeds with a a group called Team Rubicon, which is a military veteran group that's helping in COVID communities, volunteering work in the COVID communities. So um, you help them when you buy the book, and you help yourself when you buy the book, I hope. <laughs> and so uh, thank right. you. Sure. Well, you also have a thing called the COVID-19 HOPE clinical trial. Say a word about that, if you would. 
so so my my day job is to run a, a pharmaceutical company in, in you know, based in Seattle, uh, developing uh, COVID nineteen therapies and breast cancer therapies, mm-hmm. uh, therapeutic. Right. So uh, the, the trial that we uh, are hoping to start when the FDA gets its clearance is in New York City, uh, and, and it's to it's to to take patients at the very worst setting where they're on a ventilator and try to get them off the ventilator. So. Mm. Um, we have some some science around that. I, I have a, an MD and a PhD, and I've been actually invented uh, uh, seven uh, different medicines that have been used in about eighty million people. So, it, um, inventing medicines is is my day job, and and this book was something that I did just because I thought it was necessary. Right, and I believe it was. Um, so, okay, so let's give our listeners something that they can they can actually take home today and and, and to work with. So let's. Let's talk about the screening test that you offer, the breath hold test and, and things of that type. So since, you know, um, and, and we probably should back up a little bit and actually say to our listeners, at least, at least reveal to our listeners, some of what you talk about, which is that the, the, the tests really, that the swab tests and the PCR and the antibody tests have, have a time frame issue to them that may not catch the, the, the truly ill person. So maybe that'd be the place to start. Tell our listeners about the situation that, of the tests and what the tests do and don't do that we currently have here in the States. Sure, sure. So, um, first of all, yeah, let, let, let's talk a little bit about the infection. So you typically will get the infection in an indoor setting from someone who has sneezed or coughed or actually even talk too much, talk too loudly or too aggressively, okay. uh, because then because the virus is in little droplets. Uh, in a study out of China where they, they were absolutely able to trace 320 person-to-person transfers, 319 were indoors. Mm-hmm. One was outdoors. Mm. So, so that's how you get it, and that's day zero. Um, there is no test, uh, either symptom-wise, temperature-wise, any sort of symptom-wise, for three days. Uh, either the swab test or any clinical test, you know, if they came to you net as a as a patient, would you wouldn't you wouldn't know they had the infection. Right. Day four and day five, the swab test begins to find patients, but it it only picks up about twenty percent on day four and about sixty percent on, on on day five. But by day five, uh, eighty to eighty five percent of patients will begin to have a fever. They begin to have sweat. Uh, they'll begin to have you know chills. All of the symptoms of an infectious disease. Right. Um, and then it just it just continues for about 14 days until most people recover, um, and then they go back to normal. Interesting thing with this virus, it's a little different than others, is even without a fever and when you've recovered, you continue to shed virus for three or four days. So our standard physician guidance is, you know, if you feel okay, you know, stay home if you have a fever and, you know, all those symptoms. But once you feel okay, you can go back to work, go back into the world. Here, I'd like to put a like a three or four day pause on that and just continue to you know, watch movies or read books or things because you're probably still infectious. Well, One of the nasty things about this virus is you're you can spread it before you have symptoms and you can spread it after you have symptoms and that latter thing is is very unusual. Well, that that was one of the most important points that I thought we, that I wanted to be sure that we touched on because I think that the the sort of normal expectation of exactly as you said, when the symptoms have receded, then we're good to go. But, oh, sorry about that. No, we're not good to go. So yeah, not with this one, not with this one. Not with this one. So now you offer uh, some guidance in terms of um, some screening tests that people can do at home, which, which you claim are pretty much as good as anything you're going to get down at your doctor's office. So uh, perhaps I shouldn't say it that way, but um, t- tell us about the screening test that you offer in your book. Yeah, so yeah, and 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 I, I'm actually I'm willing to I'm willing to say claim because a very important point is every uh, every teaching in this book uh, is from a peer-reviewed scientific paper. Mm-hmm. So I published uh, over 300 papers. I've been cited 9,800 times. So I, I'm I'm in the academic world from that point of view, and so I did not put anything in here that did not have a peer-reviewed, you know, statistically significant. Uh, result associated with it. So right, right. the test that I propose that we that we do is something I you know again I jokingly do it. Let, let's do it at breakfast with the kids. Um, is 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 threefold. Do you, do you have a fever, which is easy to test. 
can you hold your breath for 10 seconds? Now, the purpose of that is to see if you, you have any, you know, if you're coughing, you obviously can't do it. And, and when you take a very deep breath and hold it, you're actually challenging that little bit of infection you might be having. So I think that probably gives you a day or two ahead of an actual cough. Um, I think people who end up coughing two days earlier couldn't hold the breath for 10 seconds. And then I've added a third feature, which came out in March. A very astute physician in Britain uh, showed that in a highly statistical significant fashion that if you have a fever and a cough and or a cough and you have a change in the smell of food or the taste or things taste funny or smell funny, um, you have, it's highly like you have COVID and you don't have some other inf- in- infection. Mm. I mean, the weaknesses of not being, you know, the weaknesses of coughing and, and, and fever are that it's highly, uh, highly sensitive to finding COVID, but it's not very specific. So every infection under the sun that makes you cough and have a fever, you, you know, you pass that test. But adding, adding a sense of smell or a sense of taste change makes it as good as the, as good as the PCR Nobel Prize winning uh, RNA test. <laughs> right. Great. Okay. Well that, so you, okay. So the, the other, another part of it, you say that the temperature less than a hundred point four degrees, say, say a little about that part, if you would. Well, yeah. So, uh, so we, <laughs> we, we've had a slight change in the 98.6. That is the standard, um, oh, okay. uh, for, uh, for temperatures. So, uh, it's gone down a little bit. So I think we have to lower the standard a little bit. So, um, that's the temperature I would use to indicate whether someone has a fever. Mm-hmm. Um, fevers are good for a while unless they get to 103, 104, and then they're not good for the brain. So right. um, my advice for you know people with kids or things that have a fever, you know, let them have a little bit of a fever because it it, it speeds up it speeds up getting rid of the uh, virus because the viruses don't like that tiny temperature change. That's why we do it. I, I mean, most of the things the body does spontaneously. <laughs> evolved as a, as a, as a positive thing for us. So, um, right, right. take advantage of that. Now you also give us some very specific guidance in terms of developing, uh, forced, uh, vital capacity of the lungs. Now tell us that story, if you would, please. I absolutely will. So, um, it, it, I can start just a little bit earlier. <laughs> so when, 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 when people age and then when they eventually die, they, they don't, it's sort of like a car. It's not every 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 organ stops at the same time. That's very rare. It's usually <laughs> one particular organ right, right. That, that, that that's their downfall, and everything's linked. So if you have bad lungs or bad heart, you know, any one of them is enough to take you down. Um, I do not believe this virus kills old people because it knows when they were born. I believe this virus kills old people because, as part of normal physiology and without anything intervening you lose about half of your lung capacity from your peak at age 35 to 40 to being 70, 80, 90. Um, and this is a simple number in, in the laboratory. You measure it you know, in, a, in a pulmonary uh, medicine laboratory. It, it's basically how much air can you blow out after a very big deep breath. As I said, you lose, you lose 40 to 50 to 60% of that by the time you're 60 or 70 or 80. Um, nobody wants to get old, nobody wants that to happen to them, but guess what? You can actually reverse it. The two sets of muscles that are responsible for that are the ones between your ribs, called the intercostals. You know, when you have a spare rib, you have, that's the muscle that you're stomping on. Right. And the diaphragm, which is, the, which is the, the muscle at the bottom of the lungs. No matter what you do in the gym, and I go to the gym every day, no matter what I do you know, on, uh, on high-intensity uh, high exercise, I don't exercise those two sets of muscles. Mm-hmm. So there's a very specific uh, device and, and, and treatment called respiratory muscle therapy. Uh, in the in the book, I talk about how it, it, it prevents people from going on ventilators and surgery. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a wonderful thing. And you can basically take your lung capacity wherever it is, and in 15 minutes a day, in two weeks, take your lungs, make your lungs 5 to 10 to 15 years younger based on, you know, the, the standard for the average person. So I, I talk about that a lot in the book. Um, the little device that I like, which I bought because I'm an asthmatic a couple of years ago, and I use I use regularly. I think it's, it's a little expensive at forty dollars um, because it's a simple thing, but it exercises both the inhalation and the exhalation muscles. But if you don't have COVID, you should get your lungs in shape, and even if you if you start to get it, I think you I think you still should do this. 
The reason people are dying is because they can't get the virus out of their lungs. They make mucus. The mucus is designed to get the virus out, but they can't get the mucus out. Right. So, um, you know, I hope no one's eating lunch while I'm talking, but there's, right. there's a lot of information around this in the book about uh, how to improve the strength of your muscles, make your cost stronger, how to make your, your mucus thinner. Uh, and all of that, I think, will 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 take this. So, so even if you're elderly, um, you can you can beat this thing. Right. Well, that's that's of course one of the one makes me want to make me jump out of my chair almost when I saw that, and I thought to myself because of course so much of what we're hearing is is about somehow it's just it's just sort of hopeless. We we don't really have there's there's no kind of what to do. All there is is sort of wait around and wear a mask. Well, for those of us who have had any kind of exercise history, uh, and also also if we're a physician, we know about intercostal muscles and diaphragms and how th- those shut down on a lot of people, and that's a lot of problems that they, a lot of other problems arise when those systems become stagnant and, and less active. So, But I had never heard specifically of this respiratory muscle training thing, and I'm just thrilled to see it because, of course, it's something that you literally can do, and the way you describe it, the cheerful a description that you put in your book causes me to feel that even myself at 76 years of age, uh, you know, I, there's just one more thing I can do to really start to give myself some self-protection uh, to, you know, look forward, given that this, as, as you write about uh, in your book, you say that your expectation is that we're all going to get this. Is that in th- there's in th- in, as I remember, in three years, you said everybody's going to get to be touched by this, and this is not going to go away. And again, that's one of the things that you uh, as I read what you write, is that you, this is not a weekend deal, or this is not a few months. This is really going to be around, and so if 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 it is going to be around, and we want to survive, you say particularly those of us in my generation and older and younger, even uh, we're we're going to need to have our our respiratory muscle training in in intact. So um, you you use the word. Pulmonary toilet, which is an interesting frame, and and so maybe if you'd be kind enough to lay out the pieces of that puzzle and kind of how that fits together with the the RMT you call it. Yeah, so um, uh, pulmonary toilet was a was a is a term in medicine uh, that I certainly used, uh, you, you know, in 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 my training and in in the hospital days. Sure. Uh, it's all it's now been changed to pulmonary hygiene. That's ah, okay. the new term. Okay, uh, but but I. But I kind of like the original term because it reminds it reminds the patient and everybody. Hey, um, the purpose of these of these steps and these processes, which um, may be the most important thing for for people not dying from pneumonia, uh, are are ways of cleaning out your lungs. I mean, your lungs are really uh, effectively in the world, so to speak. The inside of your lungs are in the world because every time you inhale, you're inhaling. The bacteria and the viruses and the particles from the world, and, and then you blow them out again. So mm-hmm. um, it, it has to do with, um, especially, and, and so how do the lungs respond to an infection? Well, they respond in some very characteristic ways. Um, they make mucus, which is a which is just a thick protein liquid that um, that is trying to you know keep whatever is growing in your lungs uh, to, to just encapsulate it. Just, so to put it like an amber in uh, you know in, in Jurassic Park. Right. Um, once that happens, you need to get that mucus out of your lungs, and that takes uh, a lot of energy. It takes uh, very high velocity uh, contractions of the intercostal muscles and of the diaphragm to get the mucus out. So uh, uh, you know the, one of the things you can do to help yourself is to make the mucus thinner, and you do that in two ways. You, you do that with the standard from the outside and the inside. So. Uh, I mean, the outside is 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 uh, taking in as much fluid as possible. So, you know, drinking uh, you know ninety six uh, ninety six ounces a day of fluid when you're sick uh, is a wonderful idea. And uh, the simple way to monitor that is, you know, what color is your urine? And if it still has a little bit of yellow, you could probably still drink a little more fluid. So that's going to thin it, thin it, you know, from the outside, so to speak. Things like getting in the shower where you breathe in uh, mist, a very, you know, hot mist that you're not standing in, you know, scalding water, but you're standing next to it, breathing in the shower. So I do that with my kids uh, when they get, you know, pulmonary infection. Put them in the shower, you know, every couple hours for five or ten minutes. Uh, they start coughing like crazy because what happens is they, they inhale the, the, the nice clean water. It mixes with the mucus. Mucus gets thinner, and suddenly uh, they have an urge to get rid of it. Right. Um, 
don't use cough suppressants. That's a crazy, that's a crazy idea. Uh, your, your, your lungs want to cough because they, you know, they want to save you from, by getting rid of all this stuff in your lungs. And you take a drug that suppresses, it tells your brain to not cough. I don't know. I make no sense. So you talk so, about you talk uh, about you talk about learning how to cough, and you talk also about dr- using gravity to drain from the lungs. Say a little word about that. Absolutely. So I, I mean, I just read a paper today where in the hospital now uh, they decided that putting people uh, there's a special kind of bed where people lay face down um, so that gravity helps open their lungs. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, when you're on your back, you're actually trying to breathe by pushing your lungs up against gravity, and it's mm-hmm. a little tiny little little bit more work. Um, so this is using the same thing at home. So, um, you know, uh, again, if you're, if you're uh, having, uh, you know, making mucus and that sort of thing, leaning over a chair and having someone, you know, tap you on the back uh, is, an, you know, is an important way. That's what they do with cystic fibrosis patients, for example, right. uh, is you just let gravity, you, you, you get yourself in a position where your lungs are draining, uh, and then you, you, you cough it up. And it's, it's not, it's not pleasant and it doesn't sound good and it's kind of yucky, but the key is to get it out of your body because what you're doing is you're trying to buy time. Your immune system needs five, six, seven, eight days, something like that, to, to mount its, its antibodies and its T-cells to this new virus. And all you're doing is buying time until that happens. And again, for 99% of people, once that happens, this virus is done because your immune system just wipes it out. Good. So we also have to learn how to cough. What does learning how to cough mean? So learning how to cough means that, that you need to be, um, to, to be conscious about how you do it. Uh, you need to breathe as deeply as possible before, and you need to try to accelerate. The mental picture is, you know, blowing out a, a birthday candle, you know, 20 feet away. So you really want to cough vigorously. Mm-hmm. Uh, obviously, if, you know, if you can catch it in a towel or something, so if there's other people around, you, you, can't, you can't do that. Right, but, right. Um, very, that's a, a very important aspect. Okay. Well, uh, we've pretty much covered all the sort of corners of this, or most of the corners, I should say. So we've been talking to Dr. Stephen Quay and his new book called Your COVID-19 Survival Manual. Now, I, I'm, going to, I'm going to confess that what I did was I took a, a screenshot of the cover of your book, and then what I did is I, I grabbed uh, some of the words that have to do with how to make your mask 100 times more effective, and then I put the recipe for the salt spray underneath the, the picture, the screenshot of your book, and I, I printed it up like a, an eight, eight and a half by 11 kind of poster. I hope you don't mind. No, I think it's perfect. I, I mean, I, again, the more people that can help themselves, the better. Uh, masks are wonderful, and if you have a cloth mask, you can enhance it with the, the recipe we have, which is just salt water and, and, and soap. Um, I, I talk a little bit in there. I teach, I teach in there why that works, right. but um, there's a you know, as, 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 you, as you know, there's a, there's a pretty nice paper on the, the, the science on it. It's, it's, it's quite strong. Right, exactly. St- Stephen Quay, what a pleasure to talk with you, and I'm so grateful for your book, and, and, uh, and, I, I, and so I'm also grateful for you taking the time for us today. So thank you for joining us today. Well, thank you, and I appreciate your efforts as well. So All right. Be, be, be healthy and be safe. All right, take care now.